This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. And we at Zoomer Radio News also want to acknowledge it has been 21 years since the terror attacks of September 11th, 2001. The terse and unusual alert came in just before 8 a.m. on Thursday. Doctors were concerned about the health of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, who was under medical supervision and resting comfortably. At 1.30 that afternoon, we learned the sad news that the Queen had died at the age of 96, and after more than 70 years as monarch, both of the UK and 14 Commonwealth nations, including Canada. An hour before, Libby was joined by our Tune Into the Town panel, as well as Suzanne Boyd, editor-in-chief and publisher of Zoomer magazine, who is also an avid royal watcher. We have been expecting it. Her health has been touch and go for a while. And she's always been so resilient and always, you know, rising to the occasion. But there's been, for the since last October, there were, you know, she was hospitalized. She's been doing less and less. The fact she didn't come down from Balmoral to greet the new prime minister was telling. And then canceling the Privy Council meeting the day after she did, rallied, I guess, to meet the new prime minister and invite her to create a government in her name. And then not doing a Privy Council meeting by Zoom to meet was very telling, so I wasn't surprised Hmm. by the news this morning. But of course, it's shocking because she's been so eternal. Well, Charles is a lot less popular than the Queen, of course. And I remember there was talk about skipping a generation. Is any of that actual? No, none of it's actual. I think the royal family is still burned by the abdication, which was the quirk of history that brought the queen to the throne in the first place because she wasn't in the line of succession. And she gave that speech that we're all hearing ad infinitum on the news today at age 21 in South Africa when she said, as long as I live, I will serve you. The succession will keep as it is. Charles's popularity has grown because I think the times have caught up with him his environmentalism, all the things people thought were odd about him. And I think what's happened with him is what happened with the Queen, the sense of duty, just keep keeping going on. And William and Catherine and George are waiting in the wings, and the people, I think, love that. So I think there will be a King Charles, and he will reign until there's a King William, then there'll be a King George, and on it will go. You know, I think we take the Queen for granted, because she's just been such a stable force for so long. And uh, now to think that that's coming to an end, I think people are really going to have mixed emotions about it. Some people who don't really have any opinion for the monarchy just think we should just move on. But she really has had such an amazing life and has contributed so much and has been such a stable force that when she leaves and there's a transition, I'm not sure we actually understand how rocky that might be. Bob? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with Karen on this one. I think even people who may not be huge fans of monarchy are huge fans of the queen i'm a quebecer so i kind of fit into that category myself but she's been around she's done her job exquisitely over all these years 
And it's in, I saw one interesting fact today that the queen has been uh, the queen for 45% of Canada's existence. I mean, that, that is remarkable wow. in itself. So uh, replacing her will be huge. It will not be easy uh, for the next monarch. And I think should that happen, today's not the day to have this discussion, but we probably should have a, have a, a strong, healthy discussion on who our head of state should be, should the Queen pass, and should we move into another phase. Brad? This was concerning news to read this morning, and all of our thoughts, I think, as as Torontonians and and Canadians are really with the Queen and the royal family at this time. I'm happy to hear that she's surrounded by family, uh, and there's that comfort that's offered with that. But You know, as everyone said, we have a very special connection with the monarchy here in Canada. The events that follow in the coming days, you know, as that plays out, will be very watch, watch very closely here in this country, but around the world. And let's remember, you know, the Queen has been to Canada more than any other Commonwealth nation. I think it's 23 official visits, seven trips here in the city of Toronto. So there's a connection and there's a relationship. And this, in fact, is the year of the Platinum Jubilee, 70 years serving as monarch and you know we'll likely never see that again it's it's a huge deal it's a huge life of service a life of duty i was at an event this summer marking the platinum jubilee with a lieutenant governor of ontario and seeing all of the photos of the queen you know meeting with heads of state from around the world uh, all the different crises the bright spots the dark spots of humanity she has literally been there at the biggest moments of human history and that's a legacy a life of service that will last forever City Councillor Brad Bradford, Ward 19 Beaches, East York. Bob Richardson, Liberal Strategist, Senior Counsel to National Public Relations. And Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. Our Tune Into the Town panel joined Libby, along with Suzanne Boyd, Editor-in-Chief and publisher of Zoomer Magazine, just an hour before we learned on Thursday that the Queen had died. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Wednesday, there was another interest rate hike from the Bank of Canada, one which will increase expenses for many Canadians and the fifth of 2022. For those with savings, it is also raising the possibility that has not been a lucrative option for a long time, buying GICs. Libby was joined on Thursday by two experts to give their best advice during this challenging time. Gordon Pape, editor and publisher of the Internet Wealth Builder and Income Investor Newsletters, and Dr. Thomas Davidoff, director, UBC Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate at the Sauter School of Business. Fortunately, people with variable rate mortgages mostly you know, uh, have fixed payments, so it slows down their amortization uh, and they're paying more interest, but that's not a giant pain. Some people with variable rate mortgages do pay more. A lot of consumer debt, of course, is variable rate. And, you know, every month about 160th of homeowners renew their mortgages. And, uh, of course, they're going to see much higher costs. Mm -hmm. But the theory is that as you raise rates, people spend less and that will tame inflation. But I think in the short term, couldn't that lead to more price hikes, Dr. Davidoff? Generally, no. You know, you could argue that, you know, a landlord or other business facing higher costs of capital would seek to pass that on to consumers. 
you know, that could happen through a reduction in investment. Certainly, you would expect rents to rise over time in response. But generally speaking, you know, it's found that that rate increases slow down economies and and, and, uh, tend to reduce inflation. GIC rates are going up. They're obviously not going up in lockstep with the rate of increase of the Bank of Canada, but certainly they're trending higher. I was checking uh, GIC rates this morning, and you can get a one-year GIC rate at uh, some of the uh, digital financial institutions for 4.5%. 4.5% for a year at this point in time is not a bad choice. Uh, you can also get uh, five-year rates of 5%, uh, again, from some of the smaller institutions. Uh, but I wouldn't want to lock in my money for that length of time, uh, given the fact that uh, the Bank of Canada has clearly indicated that uh, it's going to continue to rise, uh, increase rates in the future. We're probably going to see another uh, jump of 25 or 50 basis points at the uh, meeting that's going to be held in late October. Do you agree uh, this was uh, Rob Carrick in the Globe and Mail, and he said, whatever you do, don't buy them from big banks because uh, you can do a lot better elsewhere and don't get suckered in with introductory rates. Gordon, do you agree with that advice? Well, I certainly agree if what you're getting is something that's only going to be in place for three months, something like that, which is what introductory rates usually are. If you can get a a one-year GIC rate from a major bank at uh, anywhere from 4 to 4.5%, I certainly wouldn't shy away from that. Uh, But uh, definitely at, at this point in time, it pays to shop around because what's happening is the rates are changing Almost by the day, uh, I uh, usually use a um, few websites to what rates are being offered by various institutions, uh, one of them being uh, ratehub.ca, and they can kind of keep you in touch with just who's offering what at any given moment and allow you to get the best possible return on your money. There are other reasons, you know, certainly statistical inflation operates with a lag, as well as real inflation with wage contracts uh, adapting to backward-looking inflation. Uh, You have things like uh, rent contracts, uh, where rents is a significant part of inflation, and rent contracts, you know, are fixed. In in some places, they're subject to rent control, and in D.C., we won't see renewal rents uh, increase much this year. But in other locations where you have more flexibility in increasing your rents, uh, those happen with a lag. Uh, And so we don't see the increases in rents uh, that some people will pay coming in. So inflation, uh, you know, is kind of sticky. It's tough to to purge it from the system all of a sudden, as you mentioned earlier. And the bottom line is that uh, interest rates are going to go higher. And therefore, uh, don't take any action that is going to... um, put you in jeopardy as we go down the road, stay short term, and um, wait and see how we bottom out here. Gordon Pape, editor and publisher of the Internet Wealth Builder and Income Investor Newsletters, and Dr. Thomas Davidoff, director, UBC Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate at the Sauter School of Business. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, five years of Vision Zero, and traffic deaths in Toronto are not on the decline. We discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. 
Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Vision Zero has been part of the conversation in Toronto for nearly five years. It's actually a global campaign to make city streets safer by designing them in a way that reduces the severity of crashes and ultimately eliminates traffic deaths. It's not working in Toronto. Typically, we've had about 60 traffic deaths a year since Vision Zero was implemented. The only year the number of fatalities was less was in 2020, when most people were staying home because of the COVID pandemic. Many measures have been put in place to try to bring down the number of pedestrian and cyclist fatalities, but it seems they are not enough. While filling in for Libby, I was joined by two experts to discuss. Environmental lawyer Albert Cole is a cycling and pedestrian advocate, and Mike Layton is an outgoing Toronto City Councillor. What we've seen is some really concrete steps towards Vision Zero on certain projects. And we've seen kind of the lofty goal of Vision Zero and of moving ahead with our plan to reduce or improve infrastructure uh, at the city. But at every turn, what we're met with is a lack of enthusiasm to actually invest in these projects. And let me get, like, give you some examples. The amount of time it's taken us to, to roll out Toronto's bike plan, to make some of the smaller changes to corners uh, so that, that cars take them at a slower uh, rate of speed, it, they're all, or, or many of them are linked to upgrades or replacements of roads. And the, the, the challenge there is that happens very slowly. We really, we, we had the right goal, but we haven't invested in it with the same enthusiasm as we did when we were launching the, uh, uh, when we were announcing what the goal was. And then on the other, like that's on the infrastructure side. We, we need to be rolling out the safer infrastructure faster. We also need to be looking at, uh, at, at rolling out better enforcement quicker. Like we know we, we've had success with our both our red light cameras and our speed enforcement cameras. Um, most of the, that is regulated by the province, but we could be pushing a whole lot more to get those roll faster. And then the final piece on behavior, like we, we really continue to see just the behavior by drivers and really by politicians that are focusing more on the needs of pulling cars than on the needs of pedestrians. We're all pedestrians at one point in the day. Uh, pedestrians have to use micro-mobility. The city is still dabbling around the edges. So I would say that the things that um, the city has done and that Mike has mentioned are positive uh, steps forward, but they're still not uh, dealing with the um, fundamental problem, and that's that our roads are dangerous. Our roads were built in the 50s and 60s, most of them built to a width that uh, induced and encouraged speed. Now we're at a, at a point where we say, well, we don't want that speed and uh, flow of motor traffic as much as we did in the 50s and 60s. What we value today at a greater level is uh, human safety. And so it, it is somewhat ironic that the, one of the biggest line items, or in fact the biggest line item, in the Vision Zero um, budget is um, crossing guards. So there's no doubt that we want crossing guards, but at the same time, it says to us, our streets are so dangerous that children need an escort to get across the street. And in fact, it gets a bit worse than that because we know parents are often saying, more often saying than they did uh, decades ago, that I'm going to take my child to school, unlike Mike, who I know takes his uh, kids to to a, a daycare or to school on his bike. 
but they take their kids to school in, you know, vehicles that mm-hmm. weigh upwards of 5,000 pounds in some cases to feel safe. So if we want to get to the fundamental problem, we do have to redesign roads. That means a commitment, but it also means a choice. So in the old days, we used to say, well, that's kind of a price we pay for a modern, fast-moving society. Today, I'd say the majority of Torontonians say we want safe roads. And that uh, takes a real commitment from City Hall. We haven't seen that yet. And that's sort of a perfect transition point to ask you both about cities in the world where Vision Zero has been successful and pedestrian cyclists and motorists are living in harmony and respectfully. Uh, Mike Layton. Well, I think you see, like in particular, as a result of COVID, you, we, we saw some of the major cities in the world take or make pledges, at least, to take serious steps to pedestrianize spaces, make it safer for cyclists while continuing to allow access to their the core of their city. Um, we saw Paris, we saw Montreal made so, some some recent steps. But then you look at what, what happens when you start making those changes. We always hear, well, well, people aren't going to start cycling, they're not going to get around in this, that, or the other way. But you look at major cities like Copenhagen and Amsterdam around the world who started on this uh, down this road many years ago, decades ago, and in fact, we see an enormous shift in the mode share of travel with people getting around on different means of transportation. Uh, we just need to make those commitments, the long-term goals, we need to make the investments necessary. I I would just add to the last caller, everyone's a pedestrian. Everyone's a pedestrian at some point. And the fact that they're walking across the street, perhaps using their telephone, uh, is, is one thing. People do have to have personal responsibility. But I'll ask you a question. Do you ever see a driver on a phone? Yes, we do regularly. All of us see them. They're on their phones. Outgoing Toronto City Councillor Mike Layton and environmental lawyer and cycling and pedestrian advocate Albert Cole. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's a cause near and dear to my heart, the fight against bladder cancer. If you're a new listener to Zoomer Radio, I've been an advocate for Bladder Cancer Canada in memory of my mom, Sandy, since 2015. Mom died in 2012 after three years of treatment for bladder cancer, including bladder removal. But a lot has changed since then. Much-needed research and personalized cancer treatments are saving lives. And the annual Bladder Cancer Walks are helping to fund research and patient support. The Toronto Walk is coming up on Saturday, September 24th. And for the eighth year, I am fielding a team and raising funds for the cause. Joining me on Wednesday to talk about bladder cancer, survivor Tony Kornakia, Chair and VP of Bladder Cancer Canada, and Dr. Alex Zlata, Director of Uro-Oncology at Mount Sinai Hospital, Professor in the Department of Surgery Urology at the University of Toronto, and a member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board. Well, I think things are advancing uh, fast. There's going to be a uh, really big meeting this uh, this weekend in Paris, actually, which is the ESMO, where a lot of researchers will present their, their new findings. What we have observed is that, you know, in the past, especially when the disease was aggressive and required the bladder removal because the bladder went into the muscle, 
we have seen now a trend towards what's called bladder sparing, where for some patients with specific kinds of features, you can actually combine the resection uh, endoscopy resection of the tumor with chemoradiation and achieve similar results. And what we've seen recently is even complete bladder sparing, where uh, people receive systemic treatment, killing cells everywhere. You have the enemy that you see inside the bladder, but you have often the enemy that you don't see hiding somewhere. And when patients have complete response where the CAT scan, the cystoscopy shows the disappearance of any treatment, of any disease after the systemic treatment, there is, according to the biology and to the uh, genetic footprint of these tumors, studies where nothing else is even done, which is truly, truly sparing. So we've moved from the most aggressive of the bladder removal, which, as you know, and you know this uh, firsthand, is a very debilitating uh, surgery for many, to a uh, tailored, personalized treatment where some patients will receive one kind of treatment but will completely re- keep their bladders. And that truly is a big, big trend. Oh, it really is. I mean, this is not something we were even talking about three or four years ago. Tony, how many years have you now been bladder cancer-free and Uh, For those of us who didn't hear you on with me back in May, talk to us about your journey. So I have no evidence of disease since uh, early 2017, so so five years for me. I was originally diagnosed in 2014 with uh, non-muscle invasive uh, bladder cancer. Uh, And then over the course of the following two years from that point, uh, four surgeries, uh, some treatments that didn't go very well. Uh, My cancer had spread to the lymph nodes by the fall of 2016. Sorry, I was cancer-free from 2018. So I I benefited from some of the novel treatments. Uh, I was part of an immunotherapy clinical trial by the end of 2016 and and showed a complete response to that over the following year. So, So again, from early 2018, I've shown a complete response, and as Dr. Zalata alluded to, no sign of cancer on my CAT scans and my cystoscopies. How common is it for people like Tony, who've had their cancer spread outside their bladder, to be surviving bladder cancer, to be cancer-free for a, a number of years? Thanks God, I would say more and more common. We wish that basically we could say that of every single patient, but unfortunately we're not there yet. But I think what Tony uh, exemplifies is that a continuous bare understanding of the disease with the help of Bladder Cancer Canada, with all the funding, all, all the research, ends up translating into real, substantial, visible improvements for patients. We have been, you know, we first, a couple of years ago, had only chemotherapy and not everyone was, was responding. Then we could salvage people uh, and patients who were not responding to chemotherapy with what we called immune checkpoint inhibitors that were redirecting our white blood cells to recognize tumor cells and to kill them. And then with a better understanding of the biology of the nasty tumors, we can really specifically target them. And for instance, even in patients who have not unfortunately responded to chemotherapy, who have not even responded 
to the new immune response, immune uh, checkpoint inhib inhibitors. There are new drugs like Enfortumab V-dotin or EV, uh, which is the nickname that everyone knows, who still can be completely salvaged and for a long period of time. And so it's really amazing. It's tremendous. I do expect that with a better understanding of the biology, we're going to get even better drugs. And I, I really think that it's an exciting time for all of us. Dr. Alexander Zlata, Director of Euro-Oncology at Mount Sinai Hospital, Professor in the Department of Surgery, Urology at the University of Toronto, and a member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board, along with bladder cancer survivor Tony Kornakia, Chair and VP of Bladder Cancer Canada. For more information and to donate to my team in the annual walk, just go to zoomerradio.ca, scroll down, and click on the link. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Kate in Toronto, who phoned about the violations to cycling safety that she says she witnesses regularly. I just want to talk about the lack of enforcement. I'm a PSW who uses my bike to get around and I have a huge catchment area. I took over 500 photographs last year of cars parked in the cycling lanes and I continue to do that this year. Who cares but me and other cyclists? Why should we have to veer into traffic because somebody is too lazy to move a few meters ahead with their car on all the parking spots along the Danforth? That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fightback. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Z Patty, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.